Thank you, Mr. Crockett, and greetings to all our brethren here and guests, and greetings to all our brethren around the world. My wife and I had a very inspiring trip to New Jersey and New York and uh, other places in New England. It was a very inspiring visit to uh, Kingston, New York. Uh, when we were invited to go, I expected that we'd have the usual wonderful facilities of, you know, luxury hotels and so forth. However, Mr. Jonathan McNair had something else in mind. It was rather rustic and almost almost primitive. Uh, it was a resort, a resort area called a retreat with 165 acres with cabins and bunk beds. And uh, we had to bring our own uh, linens and uh, so forth. And it was really quite a challenge for the brethren, but very, very inspiring. Uh, it was like Camp River Glen. Uh, various congregations had to work together to provide all the food. Um, men worked in teams to even do the dishes. So it was uh, really a remarkable activity, hard work, but uh, great reward. So, um, in fact, the ladies had uh, baked these unleavened desserts that were just gourmet, and we all wanted to have another seven days of the unleavened bread. It was so great, just like Hezekiah. But it was challenging. We had uh, various activities. We had four teams. I was a captain of one team, and we had challenging activities like orienteering, where you had to go discover uh, from a map, discover these various flags and hole-punched uh, tickets, and you had to uh, use your resources and try to uh, beat the other team by uh, doing a better job. Uh, we even had a team, and 19 on my team, where we had uh, five uh, basic uh, boxes where an instructor told us how to replace electrical outlets and electrical switches. And one of the ladies was one of the fastest ones to replace it, and our team did very well. So I'm, everyone has various talents that might be discovered during these kinds of challenges. Uh, we also were led around uh, blindfolded by a guide, so you had to trust your guide to uh, walk between cars and get a spoon with an egg on it and hold it and put it in a bucket, and, and it, was, uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, we also found a way of starting fires without, without matches, as uh, uh, Mr. Crockett talked about in the, uh, uh, the sermonette about being prepared. So uh, I'm going to uh, Lowe's or Walmart and find the secret. I'll tell you the secret later on, how to start a fire without matches. But uh, we were called upon to uh, use our talents as a family, as individuals, and as a team. And the training really helped me uh, driving to Boston and New York. And driving through the traffic there, I was much well prepared to meet the challenge. <laughs> well, we've just completed uh, the Days of Unleavened Bread, but we want the lessons of Unleavened Bread to carry on through of course, throughout the year. March 26th of 2009 was the first day of the sacred year, God's calendar. And the festivals remind us to set goals and to rededicate our lives for a godly increase in uh, character and in fruit in our lives in the coming year. The Passover, we were reconciled to God. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, 1 Corinthians 5. As these lessons should carry on, even as we heard in the opening prayer, that we need to carry on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth in our lives. First Corinthians, the fifth chapter, 
the Apostle Paul wrote this very strong and corrective letter. And he tells us in verse 7, which we've read during the days of unleavened bread, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you are truly unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Uh, there are those who say, well, there's no um, New Testament command to keep these days. Well, of course, they must not have read verse 7. Let us therefore keep the feast not with the old leaven, nor with the unleavened of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The Apostle Paul is making it very clear that we are to keep the feast of unleavened bread. Of course, the lesson here is that of divine nature symbolized by the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That we as a part of understanding God's plan must cooperate with God as he replaces human nature with divine nature. And that is an awesome miracle that the world does not understand as they keep what they call the Lord's Supper, maybe every Sunday or so, but they don't understand the next part of God's plan, which is that our part in God's plan of overcoming, cooperating with God, of making sure that we will overcome Satan's self and society that we are allowing God's divine nature to push out and replace human nature, the human nature of the leaven of malice and wickedness. So as we look at the purpose of the Days of Unleavened Bread, I want to ask you today, what changes in your life, in your nature, in your routine will you make in the 2009 until the next Passover? Will you make small changes? Will you grow only slightly in your spiritual life, or will you make significant changes in your life? The title of the sermon is Significant Change. Now, we're not talking about coins, significant coins. We're talking about significant change, significant growth, significant transformation in your life. Let's take a look first at some of the examples of significant change. The Apostle Paul, who was Saul, is certainly one of those significant examples. Galatians, the first chapter, Galatians 1, and starting with verse 11. What an incredible example that here was a persecutor of the church. He'd been well-trained under Gamaliel. Uh, he knew the law. He knew the statutes, the judgments. But here in Galatians 1 and verse 11, he says, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And apparently he was taught personally by Christ. Verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And here is an enemy of the church. Could such a one ever be converted? And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation. Verse 14, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So here is an individual who was trying to destroy the true church of God. 
And yet God worked with him in a way that he repented and was converted. He goes on to say here uh, later, uh, verse 23, But they were hearing only about his conversion. He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which once he tried to destroy. The Apostle Paul in other epistles says that he was an example. He was a chief of sinners. In other words, if God had mercy on this criminal, you might call him, this persecutor of the church, how much more can he have mercy on anyone else who is converted? When you think of other people in the church, who do you think of your friends, your relatives, of those who have grown spiritually? I won't mention any names here. But I think of various people that I look look at a year later, look back a year and realize that person has really grown spiritually. And I don't know if you can tell your wife, your husband, your daughter, your son, your father, your mother, well, Dad, Mom, I, I see you've made some progress. I, I really see in my estimation that you have grown spiritually this past year. We need to set goals this year to make significant change. Now, we don't know that much about the background of Stephen. He was one of the first deacons, but let's look at Acts, the seventh chapter, at his example. He certainly reached the pinnacle of conversion. When he was being stoned to death, God used him to indict and to judge the Sanhedrin. He was very bold. And uh, something must have happened because he's giving the history of Israel and God's intervention in Israel's history, and then all of a sudden switches to a, an attack on the Sanhedrin in verse 51 and says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. I hope that none of us ever resist the Holy Spirit. We want to be led by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.14, that those who are the children of God are led by the Spirit of God. And I pray to God that He will lead me by His Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And so He goes on to uh, indict them. And they, they were the betrayers and murderers who received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. And so he was full of the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 55. Of course, they took him out and executed him by stoning him. And yet he looked and focused on Christ, as we all should do. They stoned Stephen, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, smash their teeth, condemn them to hell. No, he didn't say that. He said, he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. An incredible attitude, a converted attitude, a deeply converted attitude. There must have been a transformation in Stephen's life that brought him to this degree of maturity, of spiritual maturity. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen is a, a remarkable example of significant change in one's life. Let's turn to Hebrews, the fifth chapter, Hebrews 5. Christ lived a, per, a, purpose, a perfect life, but he also learned. He learned what it was like to be in the flesh. 
Hebrews, the fifth chapter, Hebrews 5. And of course, he asked that his enemies would be forgiven when he was dying, when he was being crucified. Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Talking about the priest who is according to the order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death. So Jesus was not, didn't take things for granted. He knew what it was like in the flesh. He gave fervent prayers, who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. We need to follow that example and pray fervently and cry out to God. Though he was a son, yet learned what? Did he learn anything? He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So Christ learned what it was like to suffer. He was tempted in all points, like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what it's like when we suffer pain. He can empathize with us. And we can empathize with others who are in pain if we've experienced pain and we have that kind of compassion. So here are some examples of significant change. The Apostle Paul, Stephen, and of course Christ even learned through what he suffered. Can you identify any weaknesses that you would want to change in 2009 that you'd want to overcome? Can you identify any changes that you'd like to make? Dr. Meredith wrote uh, an article years ago, now this is not that long ago, March, April 2006, that was the 100th anniversary of the San Francisco earthquake, and he wrote an article, Are You Willing to Change? I think we all need to think about that question, as we have during the Days of Unleavened Bread, because that is one of the major profound lessons of the Days of Unleavened Bread, a willingness to change. Now, there's the old saying, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I don't mean to put us senior citizens in the category of dogs, but we all can learn and continue to learn. Mr. Armstrong said, I remember, I think it was the feast in 1972 in Big Sandy. He would have been 80 years of age that year. And uh, he said in that year, as I recall, at the feast, something like this, a paraphrase, I have learned more in my 80th year than all my other years put together. Now, that might have been a little hyperbole, but he felt that he had learned more in his 80th year than many other years put together. We never stop learning. Are you willing to change? The subtitle here is, Your very life during the next few years depends upon your willingness to change. Your eternity depends on what you do with revealed truth. The subhead here, your attitude is the key. Too weak to change, quote-unquote, God's truth brings responsibility. Will you act while there is time? As a result of that article, an 18-year-old girl wrote in from West Hamlin, West Virginia. She said, I regret to admit that for the past year, the material that I have been receiving was going to waste not only because of myself, but because my mom doesn't believe that what is printed in the magazines is true. And so she talks about the influence of her father and step, uh, her dad and stepmother uh, kept telling her uh, to be strong and, and uh, go ahead and celebrate 
um, Christmas and Easter and so forth. But she finally gave in to my mom and stepdad, she said, and stopped reading the material. I realize now that was a big mistake. I recently got this month's magazine and began flipping through it and came across the article you wrote, Dr. Meredith, I'm putting in the word Dr. Meredith, but you wrote, called, Are You Willing to Change? After reading midway through, I realized that God hadn't given up on me. I had given up on God. I am so happy to inform you that I have decided to go back to attending church regularly and have subscribed to the Bible study course once again. I know that I am stronger now than I was then. I have repented, and I am ready to turn my life completely around. So here was an 18-year-old who was willing to take the challenge and willing to change. So what do you want to change in 2009 or this year, starting with the sacred year? There are many physical goals, of course. We just heard in the sermonette about being prepared for emergencies. Do you have those emergency supplies? Perhaps you have been negligent. You have uh, been procrastinating. And here's your opportunity now to make some changes, to make sure that you do have emergency supplies. There are even hand-powered radios where you can crank uh, the radio, and if you run out of batteries, uh, there are also, of course, solar-powered pa- uh, uh, computers. Uh, there are hand-powered battery chargers for cell phones. You know what happens when your cell phone battery goes dead and there's no electricity in the area. So, again, we need to plan to meet those challenges and to uh, meet where people might uh, see us. Of course, in California, uh, we had to follow that particular axiom uh, very meticulously. If there was an earthquake and all the phone system was down, was there a place where you could meet? Or, in some cases, the phone system was so busy you could not call your sister or brother or child across town in, Cal- in Los Angeles. Uh, so you could, however, call to a friend in North Carolina who could you could get through on that phone line and if someone else is calling, then you can meet and know that, well, my son's okay, he's over at uh, Uncle Joe's, or, and so forth. You have a system of communicating in a times of emergency. Let's turn to Luke, the 19th chapter. There are many physical goals. I, I look at uh, some of the physical goals I have and uh, some areas in my, my house, for example, I won't get to the detail that I'd like to change and reorganize and feel, look, I, I really haven't done like I, I should. I haven't accomplished what I should. And I hope in 2009 I'm going to put more of an effort to accomplish, to succeed, to overcome, and to make big changes, significant changes in my life, even in the physical realm. In Luke, the 19th chapter, of course, we have the parable of the minas. And... Of course, we can draw analogies from this. He called his ten servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, Do business till I come, verse 13. In other words, just don't stand still. The one man who buried his talent was condemned. But those who used their talents, in this case the minas, the money, and did business and traded and earned more than what they had at the beginning. And so he said to the first, verse 16, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in very little. Have authority over ten cities. So will you be faithful over very little in this coming year? 
What will you accomplish? What are some of your goals? Uh, my wife was taking uh, continuing education classes uh, at one time. We, uh, on this trip, uh, tried to squeeze in visiting relatives. We went from uh, Kingston, New York, to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and I won't describe the traffic there at the moment. That was uh, very challenging, as I said. But we did get to meet with uh, my cousin, um, uh, who's been married now to her husband. We went out to IHOP for breakfast. And uh, they are both 84 years old and have been married 64 years. And uh, But she, my cousin, is uh, like to go to elder hostels, they call it, which are kind of primitive, like Camp River Glen, and they would have certain kind of educational uh, expertise from a history professor or from a psychology professor and still learn something. But I was really impressed with my cousin. Uh, thankfully, got to see her, got to see another cousin and her husband who is in... Uh, in uh, energy, he works for Suez, the largest uh, company in the world, second largest uh, energy company in the world. He had set a goal for his sales in uh, 2009 and met that goal in the first three months. So he's doing very, very well in uh, his business. Uh, I won't go on the rest. Well, I, I did try to squeeze in the next day, visited... Overall, got to visit seven first cousins and one second cousin and one boyhood friend. And so uh, in that it was a very profitable visit, squeezing those in the two days between uh, before the last uh, day of unleavened bread, which we kept in Bordentown, New Jersey, and really enjoyed the brethren there. So what are you going to accomplish? Uh, some of you uh, are interested in life-saving certification. Um, we met uh, several couple members in Pennsylvania. One is a civil engineer going to be taking a professional um, a professional exam, a professional engineering exam. Uh, Mr. Ruddleston here will be taking his first attempt at a CPA exam in a few months. Um, so th we have some very good examples of those who are not letting grass grow under their feet. They're still trying to grow and use their talents. You might have health goals this coming year, of reducing your blood pressure or of losing weight. Yesterday we had the opportunity of uh, visiting uh, Modest Cello in uh, uh, Charlottesburg, uh, Virginia. Uh, that's the home of Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Uh, we made the mistake of getting there late. Uh, we had a three-and-a-half-hour wait for a tour, so we decided not to take the tour. Uh, but we did visit a, a new display that was just opened up on Wednesday, had very good reviews, um, has uh, interactive uh, computers. Thomas Jefferson was an incredible individual. He was an architect. He was an agriculturist. He was a horticulturist. Um, he was a statesman, a scientist. He invented a plow and got a, an award for a plow. Uh, he also began, as his youth in his education, learning Latin and Greek. Uh, so he was quite an individual, and his home in Monticello is a result of his architectural plans. Well, we decided uh, to go on from there. Uh, since uh, we couldn't uh, go on the tour, we decided to go to another place of his, his retreat home, which one of the uh, uh, guides told us was in Lynchburg. 
and it was uh, Jefferson's retreat, they call it. Uh, here they're uh, doing a uh, rehabilitation, a restoration of an octagonal house built octagonally, and they're restoring it. And, uh, of course, some of his inventions are there as well. Uh, you won't be able to find it, but if you want directions to Poplar Forest, um, Jefferson's Retreat in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, you can see me. Uh, he uh, was an ambassador of France. He uh, followed after uh, Benjamin Franklin, who was an ambassador to France. And uh, one of the Frenchmen said to Mr. Uh, Jefferson, uh, Monsieur, uh, we understand that you are here to replace Benjamin Franklin as ambassador. He answered, Monsieur, no one can replace Benjamin Franklin. I can only succeed him. So he had quite a bit of wisdom in how he approached it. Um, I, when I see what Benjamin Franklin did, uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, I'm amazed at the potential that they had. And I wonder if we, as individuals in God's church, know what our potential is. Are we uh, reaching even the physical talents and gifts that God has given us? We need to think about that. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and of course... This is in terms of spiritual pursuits, but the principle of being diligent is brought out here, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15. You know that is a memorization verse. In the King James, it says study. It doesn't mean to physically read books. It was just an old King James word that meant to be diligent. So the new King James has... Second Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun for profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. In other words, let's learn something of value. Be diligent to present yourself to God. And so there are ways that we can develop our minds, develop uh, our talents and abilities. Uh, one of those ways, my... My father brought, uh, taught me chess as a boy. He uh, had two great hobbies. One was playing chess and one was the violin. And uh, when I first dated my wife, tried to get acquainted with her, I found out that her father played the violin and my father played the violin. I said, oh, we have something in common. Um, of course, I'm kidding. We had a lot of other things in common, too. But um, this is... An interesting research, I follow the chess column weekly, and I just found this, I think it would be helpful to you. Chess can develop a proactive rather than a passive approach to life, a priceless posture in a complex and dangerous world in which we are besieged by physical, economic, political, and social forces. We can proactively deal with them or thoughtlessly and ineffectively succumb. Or even worse, we can recklessly seek various forms of escape and self-destructiveness. Chess is very good for children, but also valuable for adults. It encourages a combination of appropriately defensive and suitably aggressive responses. Foresight is a creative mental process which demands awareness and imagination. The child, as well as the adult, learns that if you can do it on the chessboard, you can do it in life. And I've read other uh, studies and research that showed that children who are doing poorly academically in English and math, 
who finally joined the chess club in their school uh, actually began to improve their academic performance in other areas. So what are some of your goals to improve your life? Um, this is another article, uh, research came out by Reuters News Service. An active brain may help keep Alzheimer's at bay. Alzheimer's is a terrible scourge. But the study was shown over uh, 700 elderly subjects as a part of the Rush Memory and Aging Project in Chicago, who are an average of 80 years old, underwent yearly testing to detect any mental declines. The subjects were tested for up to five years and provided information on any current and past problems with their memory or thought processes. They were also asked about their activities, such as visiting a library, a museum, reading newspapers, books, or magazines, attending a concert, play, or musical, and writing a letter. Ninety of the study subjects developed Alzheimer's disease. In the current issue of the medical journal Neurology, Wilson, Rush, Wilson of Rush University Medical Center, Chicago, and colleagues report that the frequent participation in activities that involve mental processes was, as, was associated a 50% reduced incidence of Alzheimer's disease. So again, um, a, an active brain may help keep Alzheimer's at bay. A mentally inactive person in old age was 2.6 times more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease than one who was mentally active, the team found. 2.6 times more likely to develop one who had a uh, who was a mentally inactive person. So again, I hope all of us are mentally active. I know my uh, my sister is very active in keeping up with crossword puzzles, and I I can't even come close to you know her skill in that. But I hope that we'll always be active in that. When we think of uh, Proverbs, we turn there to Proverbs the uh, ninth chapter, Proverbs nine. Of course, uh, reading the book of Proverbs, as many of us do here at headquarters, we read one chapter a day. Uh, today is the 18th, so today some of us will be eating, reading uh, Proverbs, the 18th chapter. So we read through the book of Proverbs once a month. Uh, but here in Proverbs 10, and I'm sorry, Proverbs 9 and verse 10, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And then you know Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the eternal is the beginning of knowledge. Let's turn to Proverbs 14. Over the page, Proverbs 14 and verse 6. A scoffer seeks wisdom and does not find it, but knowledge is easy to him who understands. There are those who found uh, some of the doctrines, uh, like the spirit in man, very difficult to understand. But it's easy to those who fear God. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the eternal is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Knowledge is easy to him who understands. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter, Ephesians 5. We've had sermons on redeeming the time. Ephesians, the fifth chapter. I've... Uh, <clears throat> been time conscious for quite some time now. Uh, there are many management books on how to use your time uh, wisely. Uh, one of them uh, is this one, How to Get Control of Your Time and Your Life by Alan Lakin. 
And uh, he says he tries to keep track of his time 24-7. He doesn't want a moment to go by, uh, you know, without making sure that it's valuable, uh, even if that value is rest or peace or meditating or sleeping. Uh, he wants to make sure that 24-7 he's making use of his time. Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The temptations of society distract us. Uh, we've had sermonettes on distraction. And uh, I have to be careful when I'm driving. We, we drove up to New York and uh, over to Boston and down to Waterford, Connecticut, where I met uh, four cousins. Uh, they had us over to uh, their home, which I appreciated. Uh, but my wife will be talking to me, and I'm in the middle of traffic, and I've got to concentrate. It's okay for my wife to talk, but I've got to be very careful. She says, oh, look at that. No, no, I'm not going to look at that. I am going to drive. I'm focusing on the traffic. I don't want to have an accident. Distractions are all around us. There are temptations all around us. Be wise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This is how we are to use our time, at least part of the time, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. And then, of course, it goes on with the responsibilities of husbands and wives. But when I look back on the past year, I wonder, there are various projects that I was unable to accomplish. Uh, there were projects that were undone. What about your life? Were there some projects around your home or your personal uh, goals to develop? Alan Lakin asks the three questions, and I won't take a lot of time with it, but I'd like you to think about the three questions, and we as God's people normally think about one or two of them just from the process of keeping the annual festivals and the annual holy days. He says, what do you really want from life? There are three questions. Let me give you the three questions. Number one, what are your lifetime goals? One of the uh, activities we had up there in Kingston for the weekend was getting acquainted. And I had a whole list of uh, persons. Who, which person has green eyes? Which person can tell you the seven laws of success? And they all came to me because they all knew that I knew the seven laws of success. But we had to get acquainted. And who has walked across the Bro Brooklyn Bridge? All kinds of unique factors. And so we had to go around visiting all the hundred people that were there, trying to find out who is this person. We got acquainted that way. Uh, but one of those, of course, was uh, the matter of who can recite Matthew 6.33. Let me ask you that. That was a part. How many of you can recite Matthew 6.33? Okay. A little higher. Raise your hands a little higher. Okay. Excellent. 39% of you can. Very good. Now, as I told the 10% of those who could, I mean the 90% of those who couldn't, if there's one scripture you need to know, and there are many scriptures you need to know, it's Matthew 6.33. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
What are your lifetime goals? Most of us know our lifetime goal is to seek the kingdom of God first of all. Anyway, uh, Lakin uh, writes here, get several pieces of paper, uh, pencil and pen. In identifying lifetime goals, you should recognize that you would get different answers at age 5, age 25, and age 65. So you should interpret your lifetime goals as goals that represent the way you see your life starting from right now and from the perspective you have today. And then he says, just take two minutes to list the answers, and then if necessary, go back. Don't be afraid to include such far-out wishes as climbing the Matterhorn, eating a whole cheesecake, (laughs) taking the year off, building a retirement home in Italy, chartering a yacht, adopting triplets, losing 40 pounds by jogging an hour a day. There's nothing wrong with uncensored fantasies. After the first two minutes are up, give yourself an additional two minutes to make any changes necessary for you to feel satisfied with your statement of goals at this early general level. And are we not, don't most of us limit ourselves when we think of the possibilities that that are available? We need to think big. I uh, told you the story many times about my desire, and that's uh, Psalm 37.4, to go to Jerusalem and how is it? Um, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37 4. What are your desires? And of course, my desire was to go to Jerusalem. And 17 years later, God granted that desire. And as I told the people up there in Kingston, I said, Well, look, you know, you don't have to worry about it took me 17 years. You can ask God to hurry up. Because there's Psalm 70 says, You know, make haste, O Lord. So uh, David asked God to hurry up. Make haste. You can ask God to make haste and fulfill the desires of your heart. But those are lifetime goals. The second lifetime question is, how would I like to spend the next three years? If you are over 30, change the three to five years. Again, list your answers as quickly as you can for two minutes, and take another two minutes to include whatever you may have missed the first time around on this question. So again, some, some people said in response, I can't think three years, what, three years ahead, what, what can I do in three years? What can I do in five years? Uh, well, you can read through the Bible five times in five years, perhaps. Uh, what, can you, what would you like to accomplish in five years? The third lifetime question is this. If I knew I would be struck dead by lightning six months from today, how would I live until then? If you knew you only had six months to live, how would you live your life in six months? This means that you would have only six months to live and would have to squeeze whatever you consider important into your dramatically reduced time on earth. Before you start listing, assume that everything relating to your death has been attended to. You have completed your will, bought a cemetery plot, and the like. Your answer to the question should concern itself on how you would like to live these last six months. Take two minutes to write it down, etc. But it's a very provocative question. But he says, assume that you already have made arrangements. But I won't assume. I will encourage you, because I know Mr. Crockett would, and we have in a LC hand, to make a will, to make arrangements ahead of time. Um, my uh, relatives, when I talk to them, uh, said uh, there in Waterford, Connecticut, right across the street almost, uh, down the street is Jordan Cemetery, where my 
grandfather and grandmother are buried, and many of our family relatives are buried. And uh, we're talking to one of my cousins. He says, well, I have a plot here. It's all, you know, it's a family plot. We have about uh, four other uh, spaces uh, for us. So, again, we do need to plan ahead. If you do not have a will, you need to make a will. And if you don't have a cemetery plot, that's something you might consider as, as an investment. But these are three questions to ask yourself. Now, a more profound question, and I think I've asked that question before, is what would you like on your tombstone? We asked that question at the Spokesman Club. We actually had a Spokesman Club uh, at Kingston for our weekend retreat. And that was one of the questions. What would you like on your tombstone? Because I had mentioned what I would want on my tombstone in the sermon, and it prompted the question for Spokesman Club. And one man, there were several good answers. The only one I remember was, he loved and therefore lived. I thought that was a pretty nifty little uh, statement for an epitaph. But Thomas Jefferson wrote his epitaph in advance. And uh, there and uh, on the grounds uh, there in Monticello, uh, we didn't get to see it because we... Oh, by the way, if you do go there, you can get online. And uh, even though the line was way out the door, you can go online on the computer and you can buy your ticket ahead of time so you don't have to wait in line. I asked him when was the best place, the most uh, least busy time, he said, in February and in early morning. So if you want to go to Monticello, that would be a good time. But here's what Thomas Jefferson wrote. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of American Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. Born April 2nd, 1743, O.S., died July 4th, 18, I'm sorry, July 4th, 1826, exactly 50 years to the day of the Declaration of Independence. And John Adams, uh, second president of the United States, died the exact same day as Thomas Jefferson, July 4th, 1826. O.S. meant old style, uh, which was before the Gregorian calendar was instituted in England and the colonies in 1752, which added 11 days. So even though on the tombstone it's April 2nd, in our modern calendar it's April 13th. But he had written an epitaph of his life accomplishments. What do you think would be your life accomplishments? And what would you write as an epitaph? Now, I take a little risk here in giving humorous epitaphs because death is a very serious matter. But nonetheless, these are real epitaphs that appear on tombstones, and I think we can laugh uh, at them because when they come up in the resurrection, we can talk to them about it. <laughs> this is found uh, a, a tombstones. These are real tombstones. I found this on seniors-site.com. Here's one. These are actual Epitaphs. Oh, I see someone looking at a watch. Oh, all right. Okay. We're doing okay. I told you about the one where they had a, a clock on the lectern, didn't I? And, and I was a guest speaker, and the alarm went off at about five minutes before services were to end. We don't do that here. Um, but here's one of the humorous epitaphs. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up 
and no place to go. <laughs> here lies Slip McVeigh. He would be here today, but bad whiskey and a fast gun put him away. That's from the bad part of a cemetery in the old mining town of Pioche, Nevada. And this one, the husband will have to repent because he put this on his wife's tombstone. Beneath this stone my wife doth lie. Now she's at rest, and so am I. <laughs> it is a classic uh, epitaph to help us think about life and death. And this was philosophical on the tombstone. Pause, stranger, when you pass by me, for as you are, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Then prepare unto death and follow me. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. And then one other, which is an unusual advertisement on a tombstone in Lincoln, Maine. Sacred to the memory of Jared Bates, who died August the 6th, 1800. His widow, age 24, lives at 7 Elm Street. Has every qualification for a good wife. And longs to be comforted. <laughs> Well, I guess he was thinking of his wife. Well, of course, death is a serious matter, and we turn to Hebrews 11th chapter, and we all know that it is appointed unto one man once to die, but after this the judgment, or after this the resurrection. But here in uh, Hebrews the 11th chapter, we look ahead, and when we know that we have repented, we have God's Holy Spirit, that our names are in the book of life. We have the comfort, we have the confidence, we have the faith of, of God, the faith of Christ, that we can continue and overcome, and we can make it into the promised land, the coming kingdom of God. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. We've read this many times. Speaking of the saints, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them and embraced them. That's what we're doing. We are receiving the promises. We see them. We consider them. And we embrace those promises, which include the promise of eternal life. And confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But the wonderful statement about them was they died in faith, and they died in the faith. And that certainly is one of the best statements that could be made of any of God's people, any of the saints. I won't turn there. Well, let's turn there. Revelation, the 14th chapter. Ooh, I see time is getting by. Thank you. Uh, Revelation, the 14th chapter, and verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I wrote, then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. So we think of Mr. Herbert Armstrong. We think of Mr. Carl McNair, Mr. John O'Gwynn and others whose works follow them. 
Will your, your works follow you after death if you die before Christ's return? And at the end of your life, again, what will you have achieved? So I encourage you again to write your own epitaph. But what will you achieve in the next 12 months? I'm going to give you four spiritual qualities to consider in the remaining uh, hour that we have. I mean, uh, remaining half hour we have. The first quality is that of mercy. Uh, Mr. Party, I understand, gave a uh, sermon on the Beatitudes of the last holy day in the morning and then uh, realized that he had to give a second sermon. So uh, we're very thankful that he was able to do both. And by the way, the next day, two days ago, uh, was the 50th anniversary of Mr. and Mrs. Apartian. So I think we need to acknowledge that. We sure appreciate uh, Mr. Apartian. In fact, uh, he gave my wife away to me when we got married, so he's very special. Let's turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter. Uh, one of those qualities is that of mercy. And, of course, there are many qualities. We're just going to take a look at a few of them to discuss and to think about our progress in 2009, the next year. What changes will we make in our lives? Matthew 5 and verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. How would you rate your ability to be mercy, merciful? On a scale of 100, how would you rate? Would you rate 100, or would you rate a little lower? Well, the Pharisees lack that quality. Let's take a look at Luke 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, now Jesus had these thousands of people coming that they were trampling on one another. Luke 12 and verse 1. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There are different kinds of leaven. Of course, we already read about the leaven of malice and wickedness. But here is the leaven of hypocrisy. And Jesus corrected them strongly, as you know, in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. He said, woe to you, blind guides. Woe to you, hypocrites. Uh, he really corrected them strongly. In verse 23 of Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. So again, the Pharisees omitted the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And of course, Jesus was referring in essence to Micah 6, verse 8. I won't turn there, but you know that. What has he shown you, O man? What does God require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I was uh, encouraging the brethren up there in uh, Kingston at the camp out because so few seem to know, or relatively few seem to know Matthew 6.33 and some of them. I was encouraging them to memorize Scripture. And, of course, when you say memorize, that has a negative connotation that it's something that you remember temporarily in order to forget. But that's just the first step of internalizing the truth and the new covenant, of course, is to write God's laws on our hearts and minds. But he doesn't do that without your brain and without your mind engaged. In other words, 
when God writes His laws on His mind, on your mind and hearts, do you just go blank and then all of a sudden, zap, the Ten Commandments are in your heart and mind? No, you have to think about it. You have to meditate on it. And of course, our first graders at Imperial School memorized the long form of Exodus 20 of the Ten Commandments. They memorized the uh, the uh, part of uh, Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, they, remem- they memorized all of 1 Corinthians 13, because they do it in sections, and they knew the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes, and they learned the long form of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. These are first graders, and uh, they did very well. And I attempted to uh, recite the Ten Commandments. I didn't get every word correctly, and I won't. Oh, Exodus 20, verse 1. I'll just do a few verses, not all of them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no gods before me. You shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, the earth beneath, or the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to serve them. For I, the eternal God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing love, mercy unto thousands of those that love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Okay, I've gone through part of it, so <clears throat> I won't take up your time. Uh, if you want to test me later, uh, you do, do that. But again, these are God's words that have to be a part of our nature, a part of our thinking, a part of our character. Uh, let's turn to Psalm 136. We're talking about the characteristic of mercy. Micah 6, 8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Psalm 136 is a uh, data point for the Exodus, just uh, as well as instruction on how God views mercy. Psalm 136, every refrain virtually has, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the Hebrew is hesed, which sometimes is translated loving kindness. But notice verse 15, God overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. So did Pharaoh die in the Red Sea? Verse 15, Psalm 136 says so. But God is merciful. His mercy endures forever. One final scripture on this, Hebrews 2, verse 17. Hebrews 2, verse 17 on the quality of mercy. Will you make significant growth and development in 2009, and the next year into the next Passover in 2010. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Think about your high priest in heaven. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren in the flesh, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation of the sins of the people. So he is our great high priest. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able also to aid those who are tempted. So Christ is a merciful high priest. And you know 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3, I won't turn there, that God is the Father 
of mercies and the God of all comfort. So pray for the quality of mercy. We must all grow in unleavened qualities, and one of those is mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. A second quality we can grow in in this next year is to rededicate our lives. Normally at the annual festivals, we consider and reconsider our commitments. A commitment, according to Webster's, is to pledge or assign to some particular course or use. What do we pledge? We pledge to have a faithful and intimate relationship with God. And a covenant is a formal binding agreement. It's a compact. So by our baptism, we demonstrate our acceptance of the new covenant terms, and we demonstrated our repentance and our faith in Christ's sacrifice. There are many areas of commitment. One that we think of during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread is to accept God's forgiveness. And I hope that we all went away from the Passover clean, feeling pure, forgiven, and at one with God and with Christ. But do you ever feel guilty? Adam and Eve felt ashamed. They had disobeyed, but they tried to blame their sin on the serpent and on each other. And others tried to make you feel guilty or give you a guilt trip. I know some have tried to uh, put a guilt trip on me, and you have to recognize what is going on here. Is this uh, something that is true? Am I really doing something wrong that I need to repent of? You need to consider that question, and I'll comment on that later. But abused victims sometimes feel guilty for the crime committed by the abuser. They weren't guilty, but we need to objectively analyze our own sins and our own human nature. And, of course, teens can examine themselves as well, even though they did not take the Passover. So we have to examine ourselves and think of what are our strengths, what are our weaknesses, because all have sinned, Romans 3.23. There is no nation or group that is better than any other, as Paul is addressing the Jews and Gentiles in the book of Romans. So forgiveness, of course, is based on repentance. And we, Romans 2 and verse 4, of course, the mercy of God and his long-suffering leads us to repentance. So number one, this is a sub-point of commitment. Be committed to accept God's forgiveness. The next commitment I want you to consider is to be committed to forgive others. And certainly we should have done that around Passover times. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we are taught in Matthew, the sixth chapter. Let's turn to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4. And here we find that we are to forgive one another. Verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So be committed to forgive others and accept God's forgiveness. Let's take another look at one more commitment. And of course, there are many others you can write down yourself, but let's take a look at Hebrews, the second chapter. Be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. And we find those in the history of the church and even in our own 
history, the modern history of the church, that people give up and uh, go their own way because of spiritual weakness. They weren't close to God, so when temptation came along, they gave in to that temptation and didn't resist. And, of course, he says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hebrews, the second chapter, verse 1. Therefore we must give thee more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His will. So he says, we better be careful that we don't neglect so great a salvation. And certainly you've received the exhortations time and again that we need to make sure that we are close to God, and if that needs to be one of your spiritual goals this coming year, uh, it might be that you're going to be praying a half an hour a day on your knees for a month or so so that you can discipline yourself to make sure that you're close to God. Or you're going to set a goal to pray three times a day on your knees, evening, morning, at noon, as it says in Psalm 55, 17. We sing that psalm in our hymnal. Or as David did in Daniel 6, 10, three days he prayed on his knees. So you may want to set some of those goals. I'm not asking you to, uh, you know, I'm just making, uh, giving some suggestion. But we need to avoid spiritual weakness. And there was a time, Mr. Armstrong wrote in his autobiography, that he had uh, gotten away from being close to God, and he gave in to this clay project, and he realized he had to get back to God. And he went to this woodshed, and he got down on his knees, and kept praying and praying. He just didn't get through to God. And he realized he just had to stay there and keep trying and keep praying, and he finally broke through as he felt that finally he sought God wholeheartedly from his heart and felt that God was now hearing his prayers. And if there's anyone in here like that, you need to do that. If you felt that you have disconnected from God, you need to get back to God. And, of course, we just had the church fast, which should have helped all of us to draw closer to God. So another commitment here is be committed to avoid spiritual weakness. You've committed your life as you counted the cost in Luke the 16th, uh, Luke uh, the 14th chapter, um, and we have dedicated our lives. Your life is no longer to belong to you; it belongs to God, and paid for by Christ's shed blood. In the sixth grade, I went to a school in New London, Connecticut, called uh, Nathan Hale Grammar School, and so Nathan Hale has been somewhat of a hero of mine over the years. Although uh, I would not uh, emulate his profession, 1775 to 1776, uh, Nathan Hale was hanged by the British as a spy. He crossed the British lines disguised as a teacher and told George Washington that he wished to be useful to the army. He was sent behind enemy lines in Long Island to gather information about the British army. He was captured and he was hanged. And reputedly, his final words were, I regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. And the Apostle Paul was that. He had that attitude. He, he would have laid down his life if it could have helped save 
his colleagues or saved his people, Israel. But we understand that we have one life to give for our country and for our nation and for our spiritual mission. So I've given you the uh, second quality, and that is commitment. Third quality, and we're doing well on time. Thank you. Second, the third quality is repentance. In the next 12 months, will you continue to demonstrate an attitude of repentance? Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. 2 Corinthians 7. Remember Hebrews 3 and 4, we learn the lessons through the days of unleavened bread that the Israelites hardened their heart. They were not teachable. Sometimes we harden our hearts and we're not going to listen to evaluations or correction. But we need to have a repentant attitude. And, of course, the Apostle Paul wrote that most corrective letter, Epistles, uh, the First Corinthians. And now the individual had repented. And Paul is saying, look, you need to accept this man back into the congregation. And he's describing here what is godly sorrow. Now, verse 9 now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you were your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And again, that's the kind of sorrow when you're addicted to sin, you know you are, and you don't give up that sin. You just keep practicing and practicing it. You say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, I don't like the, I don't like the uh, pain of drug abuse. But, you know, you're going to keep doing it. It's the sorrow of the world that works death. You're not going to change. You're going to die. The sorrow of godly sorrow brings forth changes in one's life. And so he goes on to say, in verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, yes, righteous indignation. You know, we sigh and cry for the abominations that are committed in the world. That's Ezekiel 9.4. Those who sigh and cry are going to be protected from the tribulation. Remember the story of the, the uh, angels that put the mark on the foreheads of those who cried and sighed for abominations. We have to hate evil, love good, and of course the old King James was eschew evil, or abhor evil, hate evil, but with uh, indignation, what fear? To have a godly fear, know that God uh, is the creator, the almighty, the all-powerful, the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God through his spirit, and vehement desire, not only a fear to not sin, or fear to sin, but the vehement desire to do what is right, what zeal, zealousness and enthusiasm to do God's work, what vindication. So they had made changes in their life in the local congregation in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul was saying, in all things you have proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. They had formerly tolerated sin in their congregation and had repented of it. They had changed. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 11th chapter. We were recently talking about uh, correction, some of our executives, and 
I asked the question, you know, can we as teachers and ministers help others to see their faults? Because I know I've been corrected years ago by a friend, and he's saying, Dick, you never, you shouldn't do that anymore. You know, you really did something. You, you shouldn't do that. What are you talking about? You know, how can I know what I'm supposed to change if you don't show me what to change? And of course, Isaiah 59 says, cry aloud and spare not and show my people their sins. And so when we're correcting people or we're trying to help a brother or sister, we need to be able to show them, so illustrate the problem so they can see it and accept it. In some cases, um, well, let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31. And, of course, this is helpful in preparing for the Passover. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You don't have to strictly judge yourself. I remember taking... Uh, Italian at Ambassador College, uh, we corrected our own tests. And I know our teacher, Mr. Inglima, would have us do the test, and I would come up to this question and say, well, I guess I could let myself get credit for that. And No, I better judge myself a little more harshly than that. And I began to judge myself, even though it took a couple points off my score of 100, I felt this was a character process, a character test for me to judge myself in doing that. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. If we don't judge ourselves, we continue to sin, God is going to correct us. We thank God for that correction. But sometimes we don't see it. So if we don't see the sin, then we have to do as Elihu told Job, you'll turn to Job 34. Job, the 34th chapter. What happens oftentimes is that when we're corrected, we automatically defend ourselves. We automatically justify ourselves. And that's what Job did. He was very righteous, and God knew that he could withstand the test, so he allowed Satan to test him. And uh, he held through. He didn't give in to sin, but he had a deep lesson to learn. And Job's three friends couldn't see it. They thought he had sinned in a grievous way. But Elihu, the younger one, saw his sin, and he was able to show him what it was. You read the whole chapter here in 34, but this is the key. Verse 31, Job 34. For has anyone said to God, Elihu is telling Job, I have borne chastening. I will not offend. No, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Has anyone said that, Job? Have you said that? In other words, if you are corrected, or someone points out a sin, or God is correcting you, and you don't know why you're being corrected, you don't know why you're going through this trial. If it is because of a hidden sin somewhere, you want to ask God to show it to you. And I've gone through some suffering, and some, sometimes I don't, why am I going through this suffering? Okay, Father, I'm, I'm sorry, I won't do it anymore. Whatever it is I've been doing wrong, I won't do it anymore. That which I see not, he says, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see, verse 32, and if I have done iniquity, I will do no more. The whole attitude is, look, I want to change. Even I can't see what I need to change, show me what needs to be changed. And I'll change it, is the whole attitude that Elihu is telling Job. That's the key attitude, Job, you should have had all along. And it's a key attitude that all of us need if we are going to have the quality of repentance and if we're going to remain teachable. 
So in the next 12 months, let's demonstrate an attitude of repentance and a willingness to change. Number four, in terms of qualities to change or to develop in the next year, is overcoming obstacles. And that was one of the main lessons of the Days of Unleavened Bread. They need to, we need to overcome human nature, self, Satan, and society. And we've read it a dozen times, but let's take a look at one of the scriptures in 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John 2, and uh, verse 12, 1 John 2, verse 12. Are you committed in this next year to fight the good fight of faith? 1 John 2, and verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. Thank God for that. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Just as Christ conquered the wicked one in the temptation in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he quoted Scripture, he used the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, to counter the temptations. I write to you, you little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Verse 14, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So we need to grow in godly character and fight the good fight of faith, continue to fight against self, Satan, and society and their influence and temptations. In New York, we, with the brethren having cold showers, cold cabins, and uh, they had to really uh, suffer. One of the themes was, do all things without murmurings and complainings, Philippians 2.14. And I think they did a very good job of doing that. As I told the brethren up there, it's all right to describe the problem. That doesn't mean you're complaining. If you describe the problem, the water is really cold. I froze last night. You know, I hope, you know, you're just describing the problem. You need to find a solution to the problem. And so we need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Second Peter 3 and verse 18. So we've briefly discussed four unleavened qualities, mercy, commitment, repentance, and overcoming. There are many other qualities you can focus on and setting goals for the next year. Of course, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5. And to think, well, yes, I'm going to concentrate on having more unconditional love, or I'm going to have concentrate on developing and growing in the fruit of peace or joy or patience. So you need to decide on where you're going to focus and put your spiritual energies. But are we fulfilling our spiritual potential? Are we using the gifts that God has given us fully? In one study of the educational system, it shows that we are not, as a nation in an educational system, we're coasting when it comes to educational and academic achievement. And this is from Time.com, Are We Failing Our Geniuses? by John Cloud, Thursday, August 16th, 2007. The most academic, the most recent academic year, 2004-2005, for which National Opinion Research Center, NORC, has data, U.S. universities awarded 43,354 doctorates more than ever during the 50 years 
the NORC has gathered data. But the rate of increase in the number of U.S. doctorates has fallen dramatically since 1970 when it hit nearly 15% for the year, far more than a decade. The number of doctorates has grown less than 3.5% a year. The staggering late 1960s growth in PhDs followed a period of increased attention on gifted kids after Sputnik. Uh, those of you know back in those days when Russia put the Sputnik up there and it looked like they had won the race to space. And when every time that went over and you could even see it with the naked eye and you could even uh, tune in to radio and hear that beep, beep, beep from Sputnik going around the earth, we thought, oh, you know, Russia has outdone us. Of course, that incited uh, President Kennedy to set the goal in 1960 to put a man on the moon, which we accomplished. But the result of this is now we're coasting. To some extent, complacency is built into the system. So, brethren, we need to do the opposite. We must not be complacent or lay it us in. We need to drive ourselves to produce fruit. We need to set significant goals for the next 12 months. We need to support God's work, and we have goals in God's work for the next 12 months and more. And we will face challenges, but as a team, as families... We need to work on growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, and as the saints of God, we will prevail. Let's turn to five more, no, one more scripture. <laughs> Romans 8 and verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. Now God gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord, it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. I pray for victories. I pray for triumphs in Christ, which is... 2 Corinthians 2.14. Romans 8 and verse 28, you all know. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknow, knew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Our purpose in life is to be conformed to the very nature and mind and character of Christ, to be transformed to His image. Notice verse 37, In all the challenges we'll face in 2009 and beyond, yet in all these things, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. So one year from now, may all of us be able to say that we are more Christ-like, that we are more conformed to the image of Christ. So let's strive for significant change, significant development, significant growth, significant transformation. And let's look forward to more victories and triumphs in Christ this coming year.